I'm Nareet Ben. This is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with inspiring women from all different fields and backgrounds, how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. To say Miriam Mordak has an unusual life story is a bit of an understatement. Born to a family with a prominent legacy in Afghanistan, raised as a boy by her father until the age of three, school in America, and a short trip back to Kabul that ended up changing the course of her life. She's since played a major role in her country, from the National Security Council to founding Her Afghanistan, supporting Afghan women in everything from tech to peace building. She tells us about the life lessons learned as a 15-year-old at tribal elder meetings in Afghanistan, her own brand of feminism, finding the courage to walk away from something that looks great on paper, and learning to communicate with the Taliban and her husband. Mariam Wardak, thank you so much for being here. It's good to see you at home in Washington. How are you? I'm well, thank you for having me. Last time I think I saw you was over two years ago or so at a conference in India. And obviously, a ton has happened for everyone since then. How has this last year of madness been for you? Um, Although it's been madness around the world, I think for me, it's been a process to reflect, a process to grow and um, settle. Although I have one foot in the United States and the other foot in Afghanistan, I didn't know how I would be able to manage it. But COVID didn't really affect that process for me. About four or five months into COVID, I started traveling to Afghanistan, and actually, it seemed the best time to travel. Airports were empty, flights were empty. It was quite the luxurious experience for me. Yeah. Well, I think that's the right word to settle. I like that. I think that's was the case for a lot of people, like to be forced to settle and just like breathe for a second and sit in place and accept whatever circumstances are around one way or another. And I guess for you to really properly adjust to DC life, especially for someone like you who's traveling nonstop. So before we talk about how you ended up in DC and how you got potentially swept off your feet, I don't know, you're going to tell me in a minute, but your story to go back from the beginning and all the things you've done are so tightly wound with your family legacy, with your childhood, the environment you grew up in, in Kabul. So tell me just a little bit about if you can kind of paint the picture of what growing up was like for you, like how that shaped you. So I was born in Afghanistan. And when I was born, it it was quite a a shock to my father because he was really aiming for a boy. (laughs) And um, that's actually how I was structured. When I was born, he fainted. And then soon later, yeah, the neighboring room uh, also had a baby, but they were born with a cleft lip. So my father immediately apologized to God and like (laughs) took me in his arms and named me Sohrab. Didn't give me my girl name and raised me until I was two and a half to three as a boy. Wow. Dressed me like him. With a boy's name. With a boy's name. And I didn't know this until I was 17. Wow. So what does after, that mean, though? Do you know, like to raise you as a boy, so just his, his whole raise me as a boy approach to you is pretty much was like a boy who was very rough with me at the age of like nine months. He was hanging me on bars as soon as I was able to grip things. Um, he started making me walk when I was like 11 months. There was no crawling for me. <laughs> I was either Baby boot camp. Yeah, it was crazy, which I think um, my length, I think I have to attribute to all of the early exercises I had received. <laughs> and he was a gymnast, so he was always making me stretch, etc. So my mom and my grandmother found him very hostile towards me because they expected to dressing up in pink, but he was like, no, she's dressing in boy and black and pretty much named me Sorab, would take me everywhere with the guys. And then we had to migrate because of the Soviet invasion. Right. So when that happened, he was fighting against the Soviet as a Mujahideen fighter. And when I was sent to Pakistan, where I was there for the transition, my mother's family was in complete shock of how I turned out and went the complete opposite extreme. So when you look at my photos from age three to four, I was all of a sudden wearing like headbands and pink bow ties and my dresses. I would never wear pants. There was no more pants in my drawers. It was always skirts. All tutus and glitter. It was hilarious, which is really interesting because I can see that extremeness in me. Either I'm an extreme tomboy or I become extremely girly. There's like no middle ground for oh, me. That's fascinating. And it's it's really funny. So then when I moved to the US, I had this really strong draw to Afghanistan because 
my father ended up staying. Which was at what age in the U.S.? Oh, I moved to the U.S. at age five. So I was in Pakistan for about 11 to 12 months. And when I moved to the U.S., I settled here and I was growing up and I grew up with these different hats, filling in the hats of being a Muslim at a time where not that many Muslim people. Afghan, where people didn't know where Afghanistan was on the map. And my mom transitioning. So she came from a very strong political family, but came literally with nothing when she came to the United States. So she was going to school again. We lived in a more minimalistic and it was a struggle that I didn't understand what was happening. And then my father later got appointed as a political diplomat here in Washington, D.C., and we've shifted from the West Coast to the East Coast. So my involvement, my sense of loss and not finding home until I reached Afghanistan. And that was when I first took my trip when I was 15. Well, I want to pause there for a second. Yeah. Did you feel until then, because I really understand and identify with that concept of sort of split identities and trying to figure out, trying to explore kind of the, the unfinished business of, of not exploring parts of your identity and how important that is. Did you feel divided about that growing up? Like, were you not sure, you know, am I more Afghan? Am I more American? Am I, where do I belong? Well, I didn't accept being Afghan. It was really weird. I didn't know how to say I was Afghan because nobody understood where Afghanistan was. So I sense a loss. I just didn't know what it was because I wasn't mature enough to know. And I always would try to assimilate myself with either the South American community or the Arabs, because I didn't know where I fit in. Clearly, I wasn't fitting in with the Caucasian community. So I was like, <laughs> where am I go? Where am I? Or the Indians, because there's such a large population there were already. Yeah. So I, I was so confused. And then at that time, I was getting into my teens and my attitude started snapping and I wanted all these materialistic things. So my dad thought that it was time for me to go to Afghanistan. Time Mind to you, he took revert maybe a little bit back to the ages one and two and... Yes, mind you, at that time, the Taliban regime was about to emerge. And at that time, they were known for peace leaders, bringing peace to the country because the country was at civil war for about, I don't know, 15 years after the Soviet invasion. Right. Not not the connotation that most Americans listening will have to the Taliban. No. So... At that time, my dad had resigned. He left the embassy because he believed at uh, the Taliban mission. So he took me and I, I'm furious. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're going to get me married off. I know you. 15 year old with a bunch of attitude. Like, So he took me and put on a burqa and we went through Pakistan because at that time there was no flights into Afghanistan. So we went through the Peshawar and Jalalabad border and I got into Pakistan. For some reason, there was sense of peace in my heart and I was always I was always nervous when I was in the U.S. or anywhere else I traveled but somehow I just was like I think it had a lot to do with hearing my language right on the street I was like oh my god they speak hearing people pronounce your name right and without trying and mostly speaking Pashto because I was just like that's just an extinct language nobody knows Pashto but what made me uncomfortable was the burqa you can't see anything in this little circle with like lines, threads going through. So I lifted up my burqa. My dad couldn't say anything because he was just like, this girl's already like going through a culture shock. So let me just allow her to experience what it is. So, so somebody stopped the car. A polyp stopped the car. My dad was like, put the burqa down. I said, no. And a polyp came to me and he said, you need to put your burqa down. And I said, I can't breathe. And I said, why are you making me wear burqa? Why can't you enforce men not to look at women? So I'm going through this Western lens, having this argument in my broken Pashto and clearly indicating that I was not born in Afghanistan or raised there. My dad is like literally holding onto his weapon inside his vest, thinking that if anything happens, he's going to immediately act in violence to (laughs) save me. The guy was like, I understand that this is all very new to you because I guess he understood the hint that I came from abroad and said, This is only to tame the violence and everything else that comes with violence. You see, people don't know how to live in a civilized country. We are not civilized, he said, including himself. He said, I need to understand how to be able to live in a society and respect the men and women around me. And that can only come when you start with being conservative and then you slowly liberate society. 
Wow. He was like 20, maybe, with a long beard. And it was like every inch had a hair. It was so funny as he was speaking and it was like flaring because of the wind. <laughs> I remember so clearly. So he said, I understand that you might have issues breathing. So why don't you hold it to a certain level? But if you see one of us, I respectfully ask you to cover. He said it in such a nice way that I immediately respected what he said. And we went. So there are only certain provinces that required the burqa. So when we got to our province, which was Wardak, I didn't have to wear a burqa. It was a big black scarf. Mm -hmm. I got there and my dad just left me there for three months. With family. He went to Kabul. He went to other places. Yeah, he left me with his family. So you're now for years in the U.S., have this Western attitude, had (laughs) a antagonism towards Afghanistan, which I guess you dropped when you arrived there and felt that peace, but still like... I was like, what's what, what were those three months and like? the worst thing is he told them to make me live the village lifestyle. Got it. The new version of hanging you by the, the handlebars and... So I learned how to milk a cow. I made bread. I brought water from the well because at that time they didn't have any proper you know, running water, running water, or until this day, they don't have water and water in Wardak, but it's a very provincial lifestyle. And they're completely circ. They don't have electricity. So after seven 30, it's done. You go to bed <laughs> Light, lights out literally so, and figuratively. Wake me up at five in the morning, going to get water, heating my own water to bathe, you know, walking a mile to go to the restroom. I mean, I stopped eating. because I was like, I'm not walking. <laughs> there. But at that time, I didn't appreciate what was happening until I returned to the US. And I realized... How did you see it when you got back? Or how do you see it now? I mean, what were those three months for you in the scope of Miriam's life? My language skills extremely improved. My cooking skills improved. And listening, I stopped talking and I was listening to people more. So when I came back to the U.S., the minute I noticed the distinctions when I was together with my cousins and the attitudes that they were giving to their families to go somewhere or do something they wanted, all of a sudden I realized, wow, we're so ungrateful. We have so many opportunities here to even enjoy what we have within our four walls in our home, and we're disrespecting our families so much. You get so caught up in the culture that you grow up in, you don't know any better. Sure. All of a sudden, I had this intrigue and wanting to learn more. How, how can I help Afghanistan from there? I started baking. I started raising money. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, in terms of your work, which has turned out to be obviously all about Afghanistan and making huge impact there, were those three months a sort of turning point? I mean, is that when you realize that you want to do work or was it a longer process? No. Because you're still so young. Yeah. No, I'm not that young. But uh, Well, I, I, I went, mean, you come back as what? You were like 15, 16. Yes. Something shifted in you but so I came back when I was 15 and I I just wanted to help because I saw my father giving back to the community so much so I started raising money I started helping I started collecting clothes and then I went on two three more times and then after that I was having a hard time focus at university in my first year so my father asked me to come back so I went to Afghanistan and I stayed there for a whole semester I skipped a semester And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. He said, why don't you try to figure out if there's something that connects you in Afghanistan that can help you study in the United States and maybe you can come back and help your community. And that never registered. I was like, me, move back here. What is he talking about? But I did. At that time, Khalilzad was the first U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan and I worked with him. And that's when I realized education is so important and I need to learn how to read, write, do research. So I came back and I jumped into social work and international relations. Did that feel like a a right fit? I mean, the whole world of politics, diplomacy, international relations, like what about that felt home to you in a way? I think it was just, it was quick for me and that was available. Mm -hmm. And now that I think about it, I sort of should have studied IT, but (laughs) now I'm like, oh. So I went into that and I quickly got my master's and I didn't go back to Afghanistan for about five, six years. So all of a sudden, my brother decides he wants to get married and that's when I go back to Afghanistan. And when I go back, I finish my degree and I'm applying for law school and I'm looking for work in the US. And when my brother finished his wedding, I was supposed to do it for two weeks. My dad, the day before my flight, he saw me packing. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go back to the US. I have to apply for law school. And he said, but you already have one master's. And I said, well, what do I do then? And he was just like, why don't you just stay here for a little bit? 
He kept sort of gently your whole life pulling you back, but very gently, right? Uh, Like just kind of giving you hints that... Yeah, he never enforced them. Yeah. He said, I'm all alone. He said, it would be nice to spend some time with you. So I said, okay. I never got back on the flight and I ended up staying in Afghanistan for almost 12 years. Wow. So shortly after... Do you remember at what point, was there like a moment where you said, okay, this is my home, this is where I belong, this is where I need to create a path for myself? Or was it just like one day after the other and you find yourself having created a life there? Shortly after I stayed, about five months later, my dad passed away. And that's when I decided, because he had a legacy. He built his community, he built a school, two clinics, two orphanages in different provinces and he was a man of the people. He gave up on really believing in government systems and politics, and he just wanted to work for the people. So all of a sudden, when he passed away, somehow I felt that responsibility as he passed away. I just felt a weight on my shoulder. It was mm-hmm. so, I don't know how to spiritually describe it, but I literally felt a physical weight when he passed away. As if he handed the torch off to you and put it on your shoulders. As he just handed over to me. What a blessing in retrospect then that he asked you to stay and you stayed yeah. and you got that five months with him that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, and you know, during those five months, he would lecture me in such a way, like as if he knew he was leaving. Wow. This is what you need to work on. This is the responsibility. When I leave, these things have to be taken care of and I don't trust anybody else and blah, blah, blah. And you're my child. And I raised you as a boy because now, because when I would go outside, Many of the women who are born in Afghanistan, they're raised to be very reserved, not to look at men in the eyes, to talk in a very soft manner, not to hold healthy debates, you know, to just shy away from certain conversations. But when you would see me enter a room, I would push boundaries. I mean, from the age I was 15, when I was talking to a toddler. So explain how that works and what that was like, because for people who don't know you, you're definitely not one to shy away from uh, intense conversation and debates. (laughs) Let's start there. You stand out in all the best ways of the phrase. So as someone who was still had spent so much time in the West to come and sort of defy all the expectations of what a woman is supposed to look and act like, not only how did people deal with you? Like, how do they handle that? But were you not afraid to? So let me provide the context while I was in Afghanistan. The burqa till this day and at that day was still very strongly present because women didn't feel comfortable showing themselves. If they didn't wear the burqa, they would wear something really big over their clothes. And then when the United States had come, there was like this superficial campaign of, oh, you're wearing jeans and you're liberated. But something that my father really intrigued in me was how I dress. And he said that, Perception is everything in Afghanistan and you need to look more conservative than the national people. So people actually listen to what you're saying Mm -hmm. rather than judging what you're wearing. Don't give them more ammunition to to judge you. No. So he was giving me these pointers as I was staying with him. And I noticed the difference of me versus an Afghan girl who was raised there. When she saw something wrong or someone was speaking to her in a manner that was not acceptable or she wasn't challenged enough, she would just stay quiet and accept the status quo. But I wouldn't. And how did they react to that if you're talking back or if you're you know, doing something that's so shocking relatively, like in that context? The men would get shocked and then fall into the conversation. They couldn't shy away from it because it was a challenge that they never had received. So to them, they were intrigued. And also, it was a culture I was forming in that small circle that I was in. And Mm -hmm. after a few weeks, that's such a great, I got to stop there. That's such a great kind of sentence and concept that you were forming a culture within that small circle. Mm -hmm. I think that's applicable to so many things. But in this case, it's obviously a pretty extreme situation. But to think that you can't, sure, you can't change the overall culture of wherever it is that you are, whether it's like a workplace or a country overnight, but you can change the culture of your immediate environment and not necessarily be afraid that if I go against what has worked until now, that who knows what's going to happen, that you can actually change it piece by piece. Absolutely. And I think that that falls in every anthropological theories that exist. And I think that's what happened with some of the girls that were engaging with me when they would notice that. And they would, they would come to me like, okay, well, how come you decided to say something? And I would give them the reason X, Y, and Z. And of course, my, my form of debate was not to insult them because when girls would raise their voice, it was very aggressive. And I said that you need to communicate in a very respectful manner, but say what you have to say. And that's when the shift happened and my father started to empower 
that aspect of me. Mm-hmm. Speak louder. Speak for the people who can't have hold no voices. And he would take me to tribal elders meeting and he would dress me like a man, put me, put a turban on me. And he said, listen to how people communicate. So I would go to Wardak again from Kabul and he would tell me to stand very far. And he would say, if somebody would come towards you to say hi, just raise your hand. That's your hello. And then they won't come close. Yeah, I got to say, also, since people can't see you, to say you don't look manly is an understatement. So I don't I don't know how that I don't know how that worked, <laughs> but good job. So I had like this big wrap shawl around me, a hat, and like I was covering, I was like scrunched into the thing because it was very windy. But I would listen to how they communicate with each other. Everyone. And how was that different? Tell me about like that communication between men in that specific culture. What was so unique about it that you picked up and then used yourself to be able to find your own voice? I noticed that they don't pay attention to them physically and they would really listen to what they're saying, which really was troubling because when it comes to women, the eyes are so strong that you feel that you're being scanned. And that automatically hinders your communication because you're shocked about how one is staring at you. And then it was the tone and then how patient they were to listen to other people. And I noticed women are not like that. Women are quick to respond. Women were quick to just make, you know, a certain conclusion. But these men were not like it. Calmly speaking, shaking their head, looking away. And then I was like, okay, what techniques can I do? Shaking the head, being calm listening and then taking a second before I respond. That was key. Right. Not thinking about what you're going to say next while the other person is talking. While they're speaking. Yes. And that is actually the exact point. And that's what I started to apply. And all of a sudden there was a shift and I stepped into politics. But how can you though, as still, I mean, you're still a woman, you're still a beautiful woman, like people out of that context could see that you are a woman. So how tough was it to make that separation that you're talking about, which I think is, is a hundred percent true, that awareness of like how you look and how you're being looked at and how that might be received. Like there's so much little kind of subconscious talk that happens when we communicate, especially as a woman, how could you separate that, you know, to sort of emulate what you saw in that, in their communication? You have to be the architect of your own interactions and social circles. So the minute I felt that anyone would flirt with me or have any type of unprofessional engagement with me, I had to cut them out. What does that mean? I would just not engage that way or I would not interact or attend to any events of that. And that's when I started gaining respect. You lose respect in society when others observe you being less professional in any way laughing at a joke, flirting, moving your shoulders, having that sex appeal in a very conservative way that one can have in the context of this religious community that is in Afghanistan. People smell it from a mile away. So I had to be very tough. And you know, it's let's let's fast forward to today. Before I had gone married, as we talked about, one of the things that my husband would tell me is like, you speak very direct and aggressive. I don't like the tone. And when it made me reflect, I said, why am I that way? It's because that's how I had to form my communication. Yeah. That's how you could be heard. Yeah. And it took a lot of therapy for me to actually speak even nice. And now I flirt with my husband. But during that time, I had to be so tough and aggressive. And that was so I never gave anybody the opportunity to joke around or be playful. There was no room for playfulness in in Afghanistan. Again, you have this really extreme version of something that a lot of women go through, like in the workplace or in general, which is to be heard, this notion that you need to masculinize, that you need to look a certain way, that you need to speak a certain way, that you need to, to fit in in a way that you will be heard. And then the balance of femininity and masculinity and where can you kind of be yourself if you do want to be more feminine, which obviously is not a requirement, depends on the person and, you know, what the woman wants. But how do you find that balance? So when you have for so long been in a mode where you have to have this very, very strict demeanor in order to take your place in society to be heard, how does the other stuff creep in? Like, how do you see it now in terms of being a woman? Let's let's rewind back to my early childhood. And I think that's where my father's upraising had a lot to do with it. And I think that's how I think many us women know how to juggle cultures or, you know, communities very well. It's the hats that we play. So I was trained to be as a boy. 
So it came naturally to me. It wasn't really hard. But then when I was in my house, I was able to be feminine. Mm -hmm. You know, I was allowed to wear colorful clothes or not allowed. I chose to wear colorful clothes at home. I chose to be, you know, wear makeup. But when I would step outside the house, it was very different. It was very neutral colors. It was very loose attire, no makeup. And even today, as modern as we are and as modern as cute suits may be and they may be colorful, when you look at world leaders who are females, you know, Meghan Merkel or, or Angela, others, yeah. they're yeah. all very masculine. Sorry, not Meghan Merkel. It's okay. She's <laughs> clearly on. Yeah. She's on everybody's mind <laughs> yes. a little more than Angela these days. <laughs> Sorry. Um, not only her, there's so many other female leaders, even Benazir Bhutto, who at the time where there was no female leaders, the prime minister of Pakistan, the way I dressed had a lot to do with her inspiration that she would wear men attire fitted to her clothes, but a huge scarf. She was very presentable. She was very beautiful, but she struggled a lot with how men accepted her authority. So I had to attend to a more minimalistic aspect of her way of governing. And now, though, now that you've established yourself so much that you've co-founded her Afghanistan, I mean, that you have such a, a reputation now, has that changed at all? Like, do you feel like you can be a little more free to do both or not so much? Not when I established myself, but when I got married. Interesting. So when I worked at the office of the National Security Council, that's when I really entered into politics and became under scrutiny and under the limelight. And... When I had left the office of the National Security Council and I spoke out against harassment, I was attacked virtually in every mean possible, which also led to a certain small security incident. Thankfully, I wasn't there. That's when I noticed that although I spent about a decade in Afghanistan, there is still so much uncertainty and unacceptance of women for speaking out that I need to take a step back. Because if I don't take a step back, this will harm other girls. Let me explain why. Mm -hmm. Many women will continue to that fight. And they think that that's the good fight. But in reality, you're contributing to more oppression for women at home. Because the more conversations that there are for women having unhealthy engagements in a professional environment, the less likely their fathers, brothers, and husbands will allow them to engage in that. So when I realized and I saw the fear, the anger, the resistance, I stepped back and I really focused on her Afghanistan. On thinking about the bigger arc and the bigger goal that in order to reach the bigger goal, you need to tread carefully along the way to be better received. And sometimes you have to step back. It's just like a bow and an arrow. You have to pull the arrow back very far and then allow it to go forward. So mm -hmm. when I started to really focus on her Afghanistan, decided I wasn't going to work in the government, I really just surrounded myself with the girls from all over Afghanistan, the provinces, and tried to just build their technical skills, their communication skills on how they can achieve what they want. And they have to really be able to visualize their achievements. They have to be realistic. I can't allow these girls to live in a dream or continue to build this world for them thinking that it's possible because most of the time in Afghanistan, if you're not realistic, you will fall very flat and mm -hmm. then you will lose hope. And then you're going to transfer that loss of hope to the next generation. There's a psychological aspect of that. And I want to, I want to emphasize on this because many people don't realize that over 80% of the people in Afghanistan are going through mental trauma because of the 42 years of war. And that has a lot to do with, you know, motivation, that has a lot to do with uh, your energy levels and it has a lot to do with depression. So if they dream a big dream, possibly being something and they don't achieve it, then they don't allow their children to do the same Yeah, because they think it's a disappointment. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they, they see that it doesn't make sense to dream. Yes. You've posted some of the stuff you're talking about in terms of women and sort of setting them up for success there reminds me of something that you posted about having your own brand of feminism. Is that kind of linked here? Like, what, what does that mean? Because that has become like feminism has become such a volatile term in many ways. So, you know, it's so hard for me to talk about or engage in feminism conversation, because what I just said right now, a feminist would not agree with. Right. How are you going to step back? It's all about equality. No, you have to understand that Afghanistan is a strong patriarchal society. You have to work with the patriarchy. 
you have to work with it. And at times it's beneficial for women. And I benefited from it. I benefited from my father, from the name he had, the legacy that he left. I benefited from my grandfather. So you can work with it to improve the society. And being a Muslim country in Afghanistan, you need to learn how to work with it. Because everything relates to who your father is, your land that you're provided, etc. That's how it functions. Mm -hmm. So my special brand of patriotism and feminism has to do with how we work with the men to improve the society for the women, by the women. That's the key. Right. The women have to learn how to do it and to step back when things get too heated, too aggressive and too hostile. Because in Afghanistan, about six years ago, a girl 1.2 miles away from the presidential palace in the capital decided to challenge a mullah about these Islamic writings he was giving for women to change their way of life or the certain habit, etc. She was like, this is, this is not right. It doesn't work. And automatically, he just called out in society and said, blasphemy charges. I think 15,000 people were watching. A hundred men abused this one girl, run her over a car, put her on fire while she was alive and killed her. Oh my God. So it was a mob attack. So that's why I say that we have to be extremely careful on the type of voice that we raise, how we raise it, and who we raise it against. That's why I believe I have a special type of patriotism. I work for women to advance, but I stop when there's a fine line and I work with men when it comes to it. And it obviously is such a factor of the context, obviously, in the environment. And it's different wherever you are. I mean, that horrifying example, you know, really drives the point home of how different it is. But I think the underlying thing makes sense, not just with conveying feminism, but just really trying to persuade people or get people on board for the cause, whatever it is, is to know your audience and ideally find a way to work together and not sort of have this underlying ultimatum that it's like us or you, or either accept this 100% or nothing, if you want to actually make steps and make real change. Absolutely. I wonder how you found in your own life, your relationships with other women, just like on a very personal level, because those can be really complicated. I mean, friendships with women, I think, are the most incredible things and they're super, super important. They're not always easy. I don't know if the question you can answer it, if it's whether if it's in Afghanistan or or in the US, but especially with you and you were like really standing out in so many ways and representing somebody different, really in both in the US, because, you know, you're so unique for your, your whole story and what you've created and where you come from. And Afghanistan, where also you, I presume, stood out quite a bit. Actually, yeah, I, I stood up quite a bit in Afghanistan. You know, my motto, which kind of transpired into creating her Afghanistan, was I don't compete with women because I believe all of us win. It's weird. And when I notice any type of jealousy or I notice any type of uh, negative competition, I would just step away. I, I'm really big on understanding energies and I feel the energy immediately as I enter any room. And the minute I felt that there was no progress in a sense of engagement that I had with a certain woman, I would step back. But most of the time, I feel that we women, we don't only need love from our partners and our family. We need it from the female community. We need it from, aside from our girlfriends, we need it in the sense of empowerment, confidence, you know, building knowledge, building our network. It's all about network. We cannot fight the battle ourselves. You know, my dad always gave me a good example about building a community, especially within the women. He said, when you have one toothpick, it's so easily break. But when you pull 20 or 30 together, it's hard to break. And that's how I always thought about it. And if I didn't get along, or if I felt that my ideals or my thoughts were not from the same school as my female comrade, I would just find someone else. And there's so many, I mean, we're half the population. So you're bound to find a community that you fit with. It's It's so true that those relationships and the community is really important. And that networking is really important in all senses of the word. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. I think that it's changing because there's so many conversations around it now, but it doesn't happen because there's this underlying thing with a lot of women, like that sense of either competition or in the workplace, like the sense of (laughs) this town is too small for the both of us kind of thing. Like there's one job for for two women and instead of the notion that there's room for everyone. I think it has a lot to do with 
insecurity, and I noticed a lot of this in Afghanistan, you know, when you're raised in a certain community that flashes your insecurity, then helping you develop your strengths, you tend to look at or engage in that in that way with everybody else. So that was very prominent in Afghanistan. And again, we have to reflect on the fact that these people are still in survival mode. They're still recovering, if not still at war. And that war is still a civil war. So when I would look at that, my healthy interactions, and I would provide a lot of love, a lot of affection. I was super affectionate with all the Afghan girls. I was using very sweet labels. I was always giving them hugs. I was always making them laugh, joking. Anything I was never allowed to do, like, you know, being playful with men in public places, I totally did it with females, like being very friendly. And that changed many of my girls. I mean, I started seeing these girls. Because they see a woman, a powerful woman, a strong woman who stands up for herself also being so embracing of other women. And it changed them. Like just show them a new path. Yes. And all of a sudden I started to see them like first they built their confidence, then they felt safe. They felt safe because they knew somebody was there for them. And that is the key factor. We need to know that we have someone there for us because that forms your confidence. And confidence is what helps you pretty much achieve your goals. Whether you have the knowledge or not, most of the people achieve where they're going based on the kind of confidence that they have. hundred percent. Yeah. Have you always had, I mean, I guess it all goes back to, again, your father and the incredible way he raised you and seems like so much of, you know, that key guidance that a person needs growing up came from him. But like, have you ever doubted your confidence? Like, have you ever had moments where you're like, you felt out of place or, I, you know? While I was in the U.S., yeah, in my early childhood, I felt when my dad left, when left to Afghanistan, I was alone, you know, and my mom was struggling and juggling this lifestyle of being the single mother while he was trying to help his community back home. But every time I engaged with him on the phone, I felt so empowered. And he is my spinal cord of the confidence that I project and the love that I give because he was very affectionate and he believed that love can help the communities grow. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I keep saying that, you know, I'm, I can't be a complete feminist because I, I benefited so much from my father. And as much as my, my mother's a great leader, she's a politician, but my father made me who I am. But you can, it's just a different form. It's like a different definition of feminism that it doesn't have to be, it's not like all about women. And I think that's actually, if we shift to talk about the West and like the whole Me Too movement and stuff, that's actually a huge part of it is the thinking that, it, no, it's not just about like women banding together against the culture. It's about bringing men in who are part of that culture knowingly or not and making them allies to create change, because really that's the only way you can. I mean, whether it's men sharing their salary, for example, which is a big thing, ending the secrecy around that to sort of help women have a little more power in, you know, in negotiation when there's such huge parity and stuff like that. Or, you know, there are a lot of different examples of it, but 100%, I think that's real feminism and it applies all over the place. I agree. I want to ask you about one other thing that I know that you've talked about, which makes sense, but I don't know exactly what you mean by it, which is being shaped by fear, because from what you describe, I can't even imagine how many occasions you found yourself in frightening situations. I remember when we first met, you told me about having to travel different ways home in Kabul every day, traveling in, in protected vehicles and so on. So what does that mean for you? How are you shaped by fear? So for all your listeners, like if they take a moment and they close their eyes and God forbid, think that they're about to get hit by a car what are the first thoughts that come to their head? It's either their spouse, their child, their mother, their parent, or what do I have to transfer, right? It's the basic foundational instincts of who's important and what needs to get done. So in Afghanistan, you are in a battlefield. Although you're living a nonchalant day-to-day -day life, going to work, but you're going to work, for me, it was in a bulletproof car towards the end because I became such a limelight in the community and you had to change routes. So I was always thinking what's important and that's how it helped me shape and work on my objectives because I knew what was important. I knew if tomorrow I was going to die, what was the legacy I wanted to leave behind? I wasn't caught up in that superficial materialistic lifestyle that many of us get drawn into when we're in the West living in a more civilized community because you have that luxury yeah. to be in that community. 
But in Afghanistan, you don't. So when you're not in survival mode, when you do have that luxury and you're in D.C. in such a radically different day to day, how hard is it to keep that mindset, to sort of keep remembering, to put aside the, the less important and focus on the real stuff? I mean, I, I spent almost like 12 years in Afghanistan. So when I first came back to the United States, I was still very strong in my beliefs and knowing, you know, what's relevant and not falling into that cycle. But I think that that's where my other foot being in Afghanistan still allows me that balance. The reminder. Yeah, I could still feel it. Like I would, instead of taking a moment to read or really build my my head with information, I will get on Netflix. You know, yeah. so which I, I mean will is allowed. Be on Instagram. <laughs> you know, it is totally I think allowed. You earn the but... right to be on Netflix. <laughs> so you have like a little voice in your head when you get on Netflix. Like it's so crazy. You know, when I was in Afghanistan, I had an Instagram account, but I never posted. Now that I'm not a, a, in Afghanistan, I post when I travel, and everybody's so intrigued. And I'm like, why didn't I do it? It's because I was in that mindset. Yeah. But now that I'm in the West, I'm in a more civilized and more carefree. You didn't have the bandwidth to think about your Instagram account. Yeah. So those are the, the examples. Not to make any of the listeners feel guilty, don't by all means. But it's really great to be aware of your surroundings, to be grateful, and to be also adaptable. Like look what COVID did. It brought a shock to Yeah, I was just going to say that's so relevant right now because I think that's what most people went through this year, whether it's people who really suffered a tragedy because of COVID or who just, you know, even were at home comfortably working all day. But I think it did put things in perspective and helped people a little bit reorganize priorities. And that saying that really health is everything, like that's 100% true. And people absolutely realize it for the first time. And you minimize, you know, people lost their jobs and people had to readjust lifestyle. And that's, I think, a healthy way of being, you know, I don't remember which philosopher said this, but he says that animals are better than humans, because when they've had enough to eat, they stop. But humans are not that way. You know, they want multiple cars, they want multiple homes, they just want more and more and more. That's how I am able to distinguish the two between being in a war zone and understanding basic minimum that's required versus constantly wanting more and more in that unfulfilling prophecy that we live. Yeah, it's a huge blessing to be able to see it that way. As as we come towards the end of my time with you, I want to talk DC first of all. I think you ended up in DC thanks to a particular person. Yes. <laughs> so I think I'm going to make you blush a little bit. Tell me a little bit about this man. So um, I'm absolutely and utterly in love with my husband, Omar. I met him about almost four years ago at a gallery opening that my best friend was having. And she met him five years before and they became friends and she wanted me to meet him like seven years ago and i resisted i resisted because he lived this very fabulous social life of having multiple restaurants and you know holding night events and being around like beautiful people i was in the mountains for god's sakes in afghanistan living the bare minimum not I didn't, much in common with someone who's like out at a fancy restaurant every night again like you said earlier i didn't have the bandwidth for it i was like okay this is too much energy i don't need it i just i just want to settle down but you know when i started to engage with him i realized that i judged him too quickly and i decided to get engaged to someone else and um i broke off that engagement because it was not right although on paper it seemed right Then when I returned to DC, Omar changed my perspective on life. First, I didn't want to marry him because, you know, it's quite embarrassing for me to say, but I was engaged three times and the third time was the charm. And in my community... Well, first of all, I don't think it's embarrassing. I think it's pretty badass. And I wanted to ask you, let me just pause on that for a second, how you knew it wasn't right with the other guy and how you got the guts to leave. Because when something is so great on paper, like you say, whether it's a job, a lifestyle, a guy, whatever it is, it's super hard to walk away a lot of the time. Like, Where do you get the strength to say no? 
first of all, in my community, in the Avalon community, leaving one person is very dramatic. I mean, oh my God, I, <laughs> yeah. I went through so many. Leaving two is like, Jesus, forget about it. I was like it. shunned from half of my family. And my mom, this time around when I was getting engaged to Omar, she was just like, I don't believe you. You need to have a child. I'll believe it when then I Then I'll it. like let you get married. It was just hilarious. But, um, you know, again, I, I told you, reflecting on what I said, it was about energy. It didn't feel right for me. I just was like, I'm not happy. I'm not growing. It's not healthy for me. We have to be very cognizant on what is healthy for us. And we should not fall into that superficial materialistic trap that, okay, this lifestyle looks good it sounds to other good. people. But if you're not yeah. feeling well, you need to stop living. Yeah. And when I, I started to engage with Omar after my breakup, I told him that I didn't want to socialize with him because I didn't want to hear any type of comments usually that you would hear from men, especially from my part of the world that, oh, you've left so many people, etc. And he just laughed at me. And the first thing he said to me, he said, look, you went left and you went right and both the directions were wrong. So come straight towards me. Things will work out. And I remember this comment so clearly. We were having, I think we were having tea. And I laughed and I laughed and I decided to tell my mom. So several months had gone by, we were engaging. And right when COVID was about to hit, I decided to move in with him and not tell anybody, obviously. Wow, that's make- like an extreme version of testing out living yeah. together when you literally cannot leave. <laughs> and so it was so easy. It was so natural being with him. He was not what he seemed to the outside world. He lived that lifestyle because he had to project what people wanted to live, right? Mm -hmm. That, that materialistic lifestyle that we talk about, but he was so simple, so minimalistic, so in touch with his spiritual and religious side that it made me a better person being around him. Oh my God. I had to make a lot of changes. How I communicated. Let me tell you, that was a struggle. Okay. He was telling me you are so aggressive. You need to tone down. That is everybody's struggle. Let me tell you to learn how to communicate with your partner is so hard. Oh my God. <laughs> so oh. hard. Especially if you're with someone who communicates very differently. I know my husband, I literally couldn't be more on opposite ends of the spectrum in that sense. And it is a struggle. <laughs> what is the secret? How did you learn then like to change your communication? So imagine like a girl that was in Afghanistan who had drivers, cleaners, cooks, bodyguards, people working under her, telling them what to do without a thought of considering how they cared about how I communicated to a man who was like, you need to change. To living so, with a guy also in COVID yeah. in an apartment, can't so leave. And- I went from being this girl who was pretty much directing men all the time on what to do and how to do it to coming and living with someone and him asking me to change that. And I know some people might hear that and be like, Oh my God, you're going to change who you are. But we basically are supposed to be chameleons. We're supposed to conform into environments that we're in. And I was such an aggressive, hostile environment that in the United States, I went to cognitive behavioral therapy to readjust and pretty much talk about, I didn't realize how heavy it was living in Afghanistan until I left. And all of a sudden, all these emotions just just started unraveling. So I actually started to work on my communication based on CBT. I started reading a lot about it. And I started incorporating better methods of statements and questions. And now I think it's easy. Sometimes he'll still catch me. He's like, oh, there it goes again. There's the that Avalon Miriam. But, you know, every relationship, like you said earlier, you know, you can't always be the same in understanding. That's just not possible. But we have to be flexible and changing and being better humans for ourselves, sure. for a healthy environment in our community. So I'm so happy. I learned how to cook. I mean, I had a chef my whole <laughs> life in Afghanistan. And when I was growing up, my mom would make but I never knew how to cook. So I learned how to cook. And it was hilarious because my mom said that's how she figured out that I would stay with him because I did things for him I would never have done. It's so interesting, though, I keep thinking like having all these images like along your life of these extremes and then finding a balance, like first the being raised hardcore as a boy, then hardcore as a girl, and then finding throughout your life, finding this balance of femininity and masculinity and when you want to use each and like coming into your own. And then even like that time, those three months you spent that boot camp that your dad sent you to Afghan boot camp, learning to, you know, cook with well water, and then you end up in DC, you know, in a very different environment. So many years later, modern kitchen, modern <laughs> kitchen, learning to cook. 
just like finding that middle and same with what you said Omar said like you've been to both extremes you said no to both let's just like go down the middle yeah he's helped me find a really healthy balance it's not one way I hope your listeners don't think that it's only him I mean I've changed his life dramatically as well but oh I'm sure (laughs) but it's just great to have someone who could be that anchor you know right down Mm -hmm. the middle to help just bring in things and and I think we we often need to do that we need to go to different extremes. We need to try different things and to allow us to go or allow ourselves to go in different directions to experiment with it. Then hopefully do what you did, which is be really aware of how something affects us, of the energy around it, if it's right or not. And then, you know, go from there and make the decision of what the next step is. Yeah. Self-love was a learning process for me. And that is how I was able to find a current healthy balance. I don't know what the future entails for me. I don't know how Afghanistan will be now with the withdrawal. I'm pleased to hear about the withdrawal because I think it's Afghans who need to handle their internal affairs. But I'm scared mm-hmm. and desperate to see what the country will, will end up doing. Because if the violence continues, then there is no more hope. And once that hope within me dies, my next part of my life... Yeah, where do you go from there? Yeah, what's going to happen? There is going to be a shift. And I'm really happy that I was able to experience what I did in Afghanistan. But I think growing and learning and challenging yourself is just such a healthy way. As humans, that's what we need to be. For sure. And I'm sure you experienced that too with the shift in your career. And you have to, right? Yeah, it is a constant learning process. And that's the point. I mean, for me, the decisions I've made usually have been around that, about feeling like I'm not learning enough or I'm getting a little too in a comfort zone. And that can definitely be scary. And I wish, you know, because this conversation is all about your own personal story, we didn't get into so many things that you're so well-versed in from policy, diplomacy, and conflict and building peace. So I'll just encourage everyone listening to look into Her Afghanistan, which is the incredible organization you co-founded, all about spotlighting, empowering Afghan women, young girls, and a lot of stuff that you write, whether it's on social media or at Her Afghanistan on all those issues. And I'll be watching closely to see what goes next, but I'm so happy to see you so happy and finding your middle for now anyway before you hit the next extreme thank you so much north it's such a pleasure having a network such as yourself and i think that this is such a great example of what a positive healthy sisterhood is and how you provide me with such platform always and i appreciate it and i'm so grateful and thank you and thanks for your listeners for listening to my outrageous (laughs) story (laughs) Your, your outrageous fabulous and inspiring story i think those are three adjectives we can leave with that suit you very well (laughs) thank you thank you so much bye miriam thanks so much thanks so much for listening if you want to hear more don't forget to subscribe or follow us on apple podcasts and send us your thoughts any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from on twitter at nari ben or instagram at life deconstructed pod Coming up next week, after a bad breakup and feeling lost, a one-day wax carving class that she hated led Rosh Matani to found the gorgeous jewelry brand Alighieri with a 500% annual growth rate. She tells us about growing up in Zambia and how she dove fearlessly into launching the brand with no official jewelry making experience. I think once I started doing it, writing the stories and photographing the pieces, at that point something just clicked where I was like, this is my language. I feel like I have a language for the first time, that I don't have to pretend to be anything that I'm not, and that people resonated with it. So it felt like a great relief actually in my life. Thanks as always to our super producer Talia Golihov. I'm Narit Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed. <laughs>